We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Drew, would you come? Thank you. All right, Romans chapter 9. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the, eternal, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? With a thing formed, say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And what he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even for us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And he, he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. 
And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And, as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, but whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Did you notice in verses 22 and 23 that explanation for how God uh, is seeking to make something known about himself and uh, does so with long-suffering toward the vessels prepared for destruction? That is a deep, deep thought, and we need to process that a little bit more uh, deeply. Also, um, when our brother read the Lord of Sabaoth, that is the Hebrew word. It's transliterated from Hebrew. It means Lord of hosts. So you can imagine the Lord as the Lord of the whole host of the heavenly court, if you will, the angelic beings and all of those creatures and things that we see in Revelation uh, chapter 4 and 5 in the throne uh, scene there. I'd much rather the translation would just translate it into English rather than leave it into that difficult word that's hard to understand in English, but such is how they've decided to translate it for us, so we're stuck with that one, but all right, it's uh, time for Brother Jansen to come and share the word. I'll turn the pulpit over to him and uh, let him take the remainder of the service. Lord bless you, brother. Thank you. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2 this evening. If you're joining us for the first time, either in person, which I don't think any of you are, but if we're online, we've been working our way through uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, wherein he is instructing Timothy to address those in the church that are promoting self, uh, well, yeah, promoting themselves through false teaching and through speculative thinking and not promoting uh, God's redemptive plan, the, the, uh, the outworking of his plan through the church to share the gospel. And uh, we've seen um, through chapter 1 that uh, this is the case, and Paul corrects this by giving them a clear understanding of what the gospel is through his own personal testimony, that God, uh, if God can save a person like himself, uh, God can save any person. No one is too far out of God's reach in that sense of uh, when it comes to their sin. Paul then, at the beginning of chapter 2, begins to turn his attention to proper conduct in the church, and he begins by exhorting the believers to be praying for all men, and especially those who are in authority, uh, one reason being that God desires men to be saved, 
And so we are to pray to that end. And also, uh, more prominently, because it allows Christians to live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, Paul says. And so we ought to pray for that end. It's not a selfish prayer. Paul says we can pray that way, and so we should do that. And uh, trusting that God will answer that, that prayer and allow us to do that, allow us to continue freely sharing the gospel unhindered by the philosophy or the law of, of the land that we live in. And so we are to pray that way. It's of utmost importance in, Paul, in Paul's mind, and I think that is why he puts it first in a series of commands that he gives to the church. And so we talked about that a couple weeks ago in verses 1 to 7. And then uh, last week we looked at verses 8 through uh, 10, verses 8 through 10 in chapter 2, and we saw two things here, two instructions, one directed at the men in the church, the other at the women in the church. And the first uh, instruction or command that Paul gives in these verses is that men are to pray with holy hearts, that is, with cleansed hearts, free from anger, free from disputes, free from dissension or uh, any kind of dispute amongst the brethren. And uh, they are not to be going up and praying in front of the church and leading the church in corporate prayer, a, a uh, practice that was to emphasize unity within the church. Um, and uh, they could not be doing that properly if there was anger and bitterness harbored you know, in their hearts. And so they are to be lifting up holy hands. We took that to mean and understood that to mean that uh, cleansed from sin, free from sin in their life. The second command that uh, Paul gives in this passage is uh, uh, two-part, really, and that is that women are to adorn themselves with modest apparel in good works as an outward expression of an inward godliness. Um, and we looked at that last week, showing that women are to dress modestly uh, and to do this uh, as a, in a manner that shows their modesty, that shows an inner godliness, that shows and exemplifies self-control, not uh, doing it, uh, not dressing in a way and with apparel that's flashy or drawing attention to themselves, uh, whether they're riches or uh, in a sexual way. Rather, they are to adorn themselves with good works as, is, uh, as, an, as an expression of, of the godliness which they claim to have. And so as a woman out there, if you have this claim that you, know, you desire to be godly, then Paul says then exemplify that through, your, through how you dress and, and through the good works which you put your, uh, put your focus upon, your time, your finances, your, um, uh, you know, all that you have. Focus on inward beautification, not the, the external ex, uh, uh, appearance. Paul then continues then in verses 11 to 15 uh, with a portion which is probably one of the most controversial passages in regards to you know, church polity, to governance of the church, to, to pastors in the church, and you know, can we have women pastors, can we not? And um, you know, we may be isolated from this kind of controversy because of uh, the, the kind of church that we're in, the kind of churches that we associate with, and the, uh, the believers that we associate with, but this is a very controversial matter, and I hope that this evening we can bring some clarity to uh, why it is that God has uh, ordained that men are to be the pastors, the teachers, the ones exercising in, uh, authority within the church, and not women. 
not because they're lesser in value, we'll find and we'll notice, but because this is according to God's uh, design for them from creation. This is not uh, simply a, a uh, it's not a fallout from the fall, meaning it's not a consequence of the fall. Rather, it is how God has ordained it to be from, from the very beginning. So look with me, if you would, at verses 11 to 15 this evening in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let me read that, and then we'll spend our time this evening looking through this, trying to better understand it and, uh, and live it out. Paul then says uh, in verse 11, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression or sin. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. You'll notice uh, that Paul's instructions here are solely uh, directed at women at this point. Uh, That's not to say that there is no application for us as men in the church uh, in this text that we're looking at this evening. Certainly men have a role in ensuring that their wives are being obedient to what this text is telling them to do or not to do, and at the same time ensuring that they are being the kind of godly leaders and teachers both in the context of the church and in the home that they ought to be, not, uh, not creating this situation, as we'll kind of consider later on, where the woman has to take that place of authority because the man is being you know, lackadaisical and not taking up his, his position, whether in the church or in the home, of, of being the kind of leader that he ought to be. That leaves uh, the woman in a very uncomfortable situation where she knows leadership needs to be exercised, but he's not doing it. Yet she knows she's not supposed to be doing it. And so we ought to, as men, not uh, put them in such a situation. Rather be the good, godly leaders in the church and the home that Paul uh, commands us to be uh, both in application of this text and other texts as well. In verses 11 to 12, Paul commands women to have a submissive demeanor And in verses 13 to 14, we'll see that Paul gives the reasons or grounds for such a command. In summary, uh, Paul's instruction in these verses this evening teach us that women are to learn in quietness, embracing their submissive role and honoring their God-given design. Let me say that again. Paul's instructions here is this, that women are to learn in quietness, embracing their submissive role and honoring their God-given design design. Let's look, though, at beginning here with verses 11 and 12, where we find this command for women to have a submissive demeanor. Paul says, and again in verse 11, let me read that, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. The first observation that I want to make uh, this evening is that women are to learn. Paul says this. He doesn't uh, prohibit learning in the church when it comes to women. Uh, our culture emphasizes that women should be educated. Unfortunately, our society has devalued God's design for women by encouraging them to focus solely on their education and, and having a successful career rather than being full of good works like Paul instructs them to be. 
being a good wife or you know, raising their children, serving in the church. However, Paul's focus here is not secular education. That's not what he's talking about. Um, it's, it's not the focus or his point. Rather, Paul's focus is on learning the scriptures. Paul desires, he wants, he is permitting women to learn the scriptures, and we should value that, and we should promote that kind of education in the, in the life of a woman. Not that, um, not, don't take that to mean that I'm saying that you know, a woman can't get a college degree or be trained in that sense, but that should not be her sole focus or her sole desire is to just continue to be educated so that she can make a good career and make a name for herself. Rather, she should follow God's design for her, which is you know, if God allows and has gifted her to be married, then she should be doing that and focusing on that role as a, a wife and also as a mother, if the Lord grants them children and raising them well. However, um, so we, we're focusing on the fact that Paul is encouraging and permitting that women learn in the church, learn the scriptures. And to us, of course, that may be like, well, you know, duh, of course. You know, we have women learning every week. And uh, of course that's okay, but we have to understand that at the time when Paul is writing, this kind of idea would be somewhat countercultural. Uh, in, many, in many segments of Judaism, it was considered sinful for women to learn the scriptures. And uh, in some synagogues, they wouldn't even permit women to enter and to learn. And Paul is in total disagreement with this kind of view, a, man, a man-made view, not a biblical view of, of scripture, or of the law, and so Paul is in disagreement of this kind of uh, cultural norm at that time. Now, uh, let me kind of uh, make a, a side point that we'll come back to. People then have used this to say, well, you know, Paul is addressing a cultural issue, and so then they take that and say, well, when it comes to then women being pastors, uh, that's okay, because again, Paul is just talking about this in the in the cultural that culture that he was in, and so it no longer applies, you know, in the same way today. And so, um, you know, we can we can ignore this or reinterpret it to mean something else today because it's no longer inappropriate in our culture for women to be teachers, and uh, and so we can apply that to the church as well. And that's a, a misinterpretation, a misuse of this passage. So. Paul disagrees with this view that women should not be learning. He encourages this. He permits it. However, uh, Paul, what really Paul is focusing on here is the manner in which they are to learn. And uh, we see two characterizations here of the way in which a woman should, should learn. First, learning is characterized by quietness, or as the New King James puts it, silence. Um, I think the word silence is an okay translation, but could easily be misinterpreted if understood apart from what Paul says elsewhere concerning women's conduct in the church. What do I mean by this? Well, the word silence could, could suggest that a woman cannot speak at all. You know, from the minute she uh, enters the door with her husband into the church building, you know, nothing, you know, should come out of her mouth. Well, we don't take that view, but some could use this and abuse this text to say that, that you know, women are not to speak at all. They're to be completely, you know, totally silent when worshiping, when, when gathering for corporate worship. And uh, we don't understand that to be the case because of what Paul says elsewhere in, in Scripture that uh, permits women, for example, to pray, 
in the church. And, uh, and so, obviously, that requires them to speak, to say something. And, uh, you know, we, we, we take the view that it's okay, especially on, uh, for instance, on Wednesday evening, if a woman gets up and prays, um, you know, it's, it's not as if she's taking that opportunity to really teach. She's just, she's praying, she's uh, offering up intercession. And so, you know, others may have a different view about that. I know there are other churches that would see that as even a violation of God's word, but it doesn't seem to be the case, doesn't seem to fit with uh, scripture that a woman cannot speak in that way. So obviously Paul doesn't mean here that they're to be absolutely silent, no, you know, no talking whatsoever. Rather, they are to learn in a, in a quiet manner in a spirit of, of not being disruptive to the teaching of, of the church. Um, of course, there's a similar you know, concern uh, if we say that this word means solely just to be quiet. Um, for instance, it doesn't mean that, that women are permit, permitted to be a pastor or teach men if they maintain a meek or quiet spirit when they teach. Uh, of course, that would be kind of the opposite spectrum. And so we need to take a balanced kind of understanding of what Paul means. These, these two views are the two extremes of, you know, of, of the spectrum, and neither are biblical. Rather, we should understand what Paul means here to, uh, to be this, that women are to embrace their role as quiet learners without causing disruption and without uh, without exercising authority over, over men in the church. Secondly, um, Paul says in verse 11 that women are not only to learn in, in silence or without disruption in a quiet kind of manner as quiet learners, but also, Paul says, they are to do this with, with all submission or total submission. The, uh, the adjective full uh, as some translations put it, refers to the highest degree of something in the sense of utmost or all, as the New King James puts it, all submission. In other words, women are to place themselves fully or totally under the authority of God's word and its instruction by those who proclaim it in the context of public worship. So the pastor, the teacher, who is leading and teaching from God's word, they are to to, uh, to put themselves under them in full submission. Like a, you know, for instance, like a student-professor relationship, women are to be submissive to their pastor and teachers in every respect. Now, you know, I, I try to think of some application for us this evening. As, you know, how does this, how does this flesh out? How, how do we, as if you're a woman sitting out there, how do I demonstrate that I want to be to learn in a quiet manner, that I want to be submissive. I don't want to be disobedient to God here in this way. And so, you know, how can I kind of evaluate if I'm doing this or not, if I really am submitting in, my, uh, in every respect and not causing disruption, but learning in a quiet manner? As a woman, um, are you submitting to God's role for you in the church as a quiet and submissive learner? Well, you know, perhaps gauge it by asking these kind of questions uh, to yourself, perhaps when you want to say something, but you, you know, kind of pause and think, is this the appropriate time, appropriate manner, uh, the appropriate method? 
ask yourselves these kind of questions. If I were to speak right now, would, I, would it be interrupting the pastor or teacher as they're trying to teach the flock of God? If yes, then I should be silent at this time. If I were to speak right now, would it be a reversal of my role as a quiet learner and be viewed as teaching men? If the answer to that question is yes, then I should be silent. If I, another one, if I were to speak right now, would I be violating 1 Corinthians 14, 35? Let, uh, let me go there and just uh, read that to you. Yeah. Uh, you probably don't have that, you know, memorized at this point. Hopefully you, uh, you'll remember it once we get there. But 1 Corinthians 14, verse 35. <clears throat> Actually, let me uh, back up just a few verses here and... Uh, Back in verse 34, Paul says this to the church in Corinth, Let your women keep silent in the churches, if they are not, uh, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also say, says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. So back to my question, you know, if, if you are a married woman, ask yourself this question. If I were, speaking right, if I were to speak right now, if I were to, um, the perfect maybe example is, you know, after the service, you, you know, you go up to pastor and, you know, you have something for him that you want him to know, your opinion on a matter, you know, and, uh, you know, how he, you know, misinterpreted something in scripture. And your, hus- your husband's standing right there and you just kind of, you know, ream him out right there in front of your husband. Or, you know, maybe a less kind of, uh, you know, less drastic kind of example is simply you have a question about something he said. You're not trying to ream him out. You truly, you truly want to know. You have a desire to learn, and that's, that's, that's good. That's proper. Paul says it's good for women to learn. But according to 1 Corinthians 14.35, Paul instructs women to first go to their spouse Ask him first before, you know, kind of going around him and asking, you know, going straight to the pastor because, you know, you think he knows more or, you know, you, you just don't want to listen to your husband. You, don't, you know, you want someone else to tell it to you. And, uh, and so uh, as, a, as a woman, you ought to consider this fact. If I were to speak right now, would I be going around my husband rather than obeying what 1 Corinthians 14 35 instructs me to do, which is to first go to my husband and ask him. Now, husbands, this puts the responsibility on you. You are responsible to know God's word so that you can answer your wife when she comes to you like she's told to do. Wives, be patient with your husbands at the same time. They may not have the answer. Perhaps they just haven't thought about it. You know, it could be that really good question that, you know, oh, I never thought of that. But that's a good question. Let me think about that and let me get back to you. Be patient with them. Don't, you know, don't, uh, you know, get frustrated. Don't say, forget it. I'm just going to go to Pastor Matt. I'm going to go to Jansen or one of the deacons and get my answer because I want it now. Um, Rather, be patient with them. They may not know the answer but give them an opportunity to study it and be able to come back with an answer. 
and use it as an opportunity for you to learn from him and allow it to be an opportunity for him to study God's word out and, uh, and come to a better understanding of, of, his, of uh, the Lord's word. Recognize it as, as, you know, as I'm saying, it's not just an opportunity for you to learn, but also for your spouse to learn as well. Now, I know there's probably some of you sitting out there watching online and you're asking and scratching your heads, well, you know, how can I obey 1 Corinthians 14.35 if I'm not married? Uh, or, you know, maybe my spouse has passed on and so I don't have, have that person in my life. What do I do then? Well, let me first say that it doesn't mean that it's permissible for you then to just go, and like I said before, and go to, you know, after service, go to the pastor and, and ream him out or, you know, kind of confront him in front of the congregation. Um, you know, you, you can ask him questions, and I think that's appropriate, especially if it's done in a manner that is demonstrating that you are seeking to be submissive and a quiet learner. You're not there just to set him straight. You're really there to, you know, to learn. If you have a question, ask it in the right manner at the appropriate time. And uh, let me say this on our pastor's behalf is, and he, you know, he may he may say differently, but the appropriate time may not always be right after the service, the first thing you know that he wants to hear after he gets down from the pulpit. Uh, for instance, you know, he may want to use that time to greet people before they're leaving, and if you kind of you know capture him for the next half an hour. It doesn't give him the opportunity to greet people. Perhaps there's a visitor that he wants to speak with. And so, you know, be, be uh, respectful of, of the fact that, you know, he, I'm sure he wants to answer your question, but there is an appropriate manner, an appropriate time uh, to address it. You can politely inform him that you have a question and ask either to speak with him later or you can give him a call later on. Uh, over the phone, you know, you can write a, a, a you know, a polite uh, email to him. Just make sure that you are really wanting to learn and not trying to, you know, be the teacher, not the learner. Really what I'm getting at in all of this is, you know, if, if you're out there and you are wondering, I don't have a spouse, it doesn't mean you cannot ask questions, but just do it in the appropriate manner and at the appropriate time where it's not exercising authority over him or distracting him, disrupting, you know, you know, a conversation that he's having, you know, where he's trying to teach maybe another member and trying to, uh, you know, help them. And so we ought to keep that in mind. Now, Paul goes on uh, in verse 12, and uh, he says this, uh, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence or quietness. Verse 12 uh, is really a further explanation of Paul's command for women to learn in quietness and submission. Paul is offering a clear example of what it means to learn in this kind of manner. It's really not a, a second command, but really it's like, you know, if, for instance, you know, Timothy is reading this letter to the church in Ephesus, and they and they scratch their heads, you know, and say, well, what does it mean that I should be submissive in all respects? What does it mean that I should learn, be a quiet learner? Paul says it means you shouldn't be teaching or exercising authority over men. So verse 12 is acting as a kind of a further explanation of what it means to learn in this manner. 
It means that women are prohibited from teaching or exercising authority over men. Kind of comparing verse 11 and 12, it means women are to learn, not teach. Women are to be submissive, not exercise authority. Those things are in contrast to each other. The first prohibition is that women are not permitted to teach men. Now, to teach means to provide formal or or informal instruction. A woman is not allowed to be a pastor or a teacher uh, of, of men. She cannot fill the role of pastor, nor is she to fill the role in an in a unofficial capacity either. Like, well, she's not the pastor, but you know, you know, she does you know teach every Sunday evening or something like that. Uh, that's you know, you can't just you know have this kind of uh, pseudo pastor or however you want to call it, where you know, well, we don't officially call her that, but you know, she she kind of functions like that. That's you know, that's not appropriate either. Women are to be learners, not to be exercising authority over men. They are not to to fill the role of pastor or teacher. Um, you know, many would look to even what we'll look at next time, which is in First Timothy chapter three, that you know Paul commands that men who are you know who are desiring to be pastors are to be a husband of one wife. Well, you know, how can you be a husband of one wife if you are a woman? Um, of course, there's other reasons we could give as well. But regardless of all this, you know, you know, people want to make all of these exceptions or you know, all of these excuses for why woman, a woman can be a pastor. We leave it at what Paul says right here. He is being totally clear that women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. Now, the second prohibition is that women are not to exercise authority. They're not to teach nor are they to exercise authority over men. Some have taken this to mean that women should not simply domineer over men or usurp authority over men. In other words, you know, a woman can be a pastor or she can be a teacher as long as she is not exercising abusive authority over men, as long as she's not domineering over them, you know, as long as, put it another, you know, kind of other way, as long as they're okay with it, you know, and she's not, you know, trying to get around them to do it, but, you know, kind of taking the, 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 the proper, you know, pathway of, of getting there, taking up that position, it's okay. And, of course, that's not what Paul is saying. That's not how we are to understand uh, exercising authority over men. <clears throat> the word uh, Paul uses is not speaking about abusive authority, Rather, he's speaking of authority in general, any kind of authority over men in relationship to, you know, how they are to conduct themselves in the church. Thus, God desires women to be silent and submissive in the church, which means that women should not be public teachers over men nor exercise authority over men. Now, I'm sure this is also causing you to think, well, you know, we have instances where Women do teach in our church. How do we understand this? Is this okay? You know, are we in violation of God's word uh, when you know we have women teaching, uh, you know, boys, young boys in the church? Um, and so, how are we to think about this? Well, um, I take it, I understand that you know there is a certain age in which you know women can teach uh, younger men, boys, children. There are women, uh, of course, that are gifted in teaching. 
it's, you know, it's obvious uh, that their women have this giftedness, and, um, and we should accept that as being a, a valid gift and one that can be exercised in the appropriate way. If she has some capabilities in this way of teaching, it is to be used to teach other younger women and children. Um, you know, well, you might ask the question, you know, what, what's the proper age then? You know, how, how old? Well, I'm not going to stand here and say the Bible says that, you know, at this age, you know, or they can teach up to this certain age and after that, you know, not. But I think we can understand, you know, that once they hit around that teenage years of young, you know, young, becoming a young man, being able to think and, you know, properly and being able to exercise, you know, his responsibilities as a young man, you know, whether that be 12 or 13, you know, entering into, you know, junior high, high school, at that point, it doesn't seem proper for a woman to be teaching uh, 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 that kind of age, but, you know, perhaps up to age 12 or so, and that's kind of what we have implemented here, it's appropriate for a woman to teach uh, that age of, of a child. <clears throat> we might con- uh, consider older children, but if you have a, a woman teaching older te- teens, this seems uh, to be over, over the edge. Those, as, you know, we think about uh, the youth that uh, our brother John is teaching, it seems at that age, you know, they are able to understand some of the, the deeper uh, truths of Scripture. You know, they need to understand them. And at that point, uh, uh, it's, it's clear and obvious that uh, they should be being taught by a man. Now, uh, some, of, some have used the excuse for women pastors or teachers on the fact that, uh, you know, they are perhaps more capable of teaching, or even worse, you know, there's there's no man in the church capable, seemingly, uh, to teach or to pastor. And so, how do we address this? Well, let me put it this way: the need uh, for a a more capable teacher, or for just simply a teacher in general, does not mean that we can be in disobedience to God's word. Like this is an exception clause because we don't have someone, so now we can do it. The fact is, is we. <laughs> There needs to be a capable man. So whether that means he needs more teaching uh, or whether it means simply that, um, you know, whether a woman has maybe, a, you know, some training in, you know, in, in the scriptures and may happen to, you know, have an understanding about something, uh, it doesn't mean then she can just, you know, say, well, I know more, so, you know, give me the pulpit, let me go teach it. Rather, she should be submissive and, uh, you know, perhaps it means that, other men in the church need to go to him to help train him, to educate him so that he can rise to the occasion of being a capable and well-educated uh, pastor. If there is a shortage of men qualified to teach the Bible or, or to plan a church, the solution is not for a woman to step in. Um, you know, it may require that uh, you know, the church call someone else to teach, who's more qualified. Maybe it requires if the church is dwindling and, you know, the pastor leaves, you know, there seems like there's no solution. Well, you know, as hard as this is, maybe there's another church that you can combine with where there is a godly, capable teacher and submit yourself as a woman to his authority if there's no one in the church that you're in that, you know, that is properly exercising that and capable in teaching the word. We don't use it as, it as an excuse for women uh, to begin teaching. Now, 
Uh, Paul gives us some very important grounds for this command in verses 14 and 15, and I want to spend the rest of our time uh, considering that. The Bible orders submission uh, to men and uh, the prohibition of teaching and exercising authority over men uh, on the grounds of, of Scripture, not culture. Let me say that again because it's very important. The Bible's order for submission is not grounded in the culture of the time, but in Scripture. Again, some have you know, used the excuse, like I said earlier, well, that, you know, Paul is speaking to a time and a culture where um, you know, it wasn't appropriate, it wasn't accepted, but now you know, it's accepted broadly in our society. You know, women teach in universities, you know, uh, w- uh, women uh, you know, are capable, they're more learned today than they were back then, and so it's okay. Paul doesn't ground uh, this this, uh, command and this prohibition in the culture, but in Scripture. See, uh, as we see in verses 13 and 14, Paul says this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. uh, Paul's first reason or first ground for uh, the fact that women are to demonstrate submissive demeanor is the order of creation, the order of creation. Man was formed first, then Eve. Uh, we could look at Genesis 2, 7 and 15 to 25 uh, and read that narrative. Uh, we won't do, this at, do that at the moment, but uh, you know, you're well aware of the creation account, God creating man, and then, uh, and then creating from man a helpmeet, someone to come alongside of him and to help him. And so Paul appeals to, uh, to Scripture and, first and foremost, the order of creation. Man, God made Adam first, then Eve second. God's plan was for man to be head in the home and uh, in the church and in authority positions and, uh, like the church. This is true in the church as well as uh, down to this day. That has always been God's design. It's always been his plan and uh, the fall does not, you know, create any kind of exception clause. This is how God intended it to be. And as believers and Christians, uh, we should submit to that and, and obey uh, this, uh, this ground. Note that uh, in 1 Corinthians 11:3, let me read that for you since it's close by. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Paul uh, repeats this idea, 11.3, beginning actually in verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep uh, traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So here we see uh, this, this, uh, the order here. And, uh, and let, me, let me put it this way. It's not my notes, but I, you know, I think I'm on good grounds to put it this way. That Paul is speaking on, kind of a, uh, on a kind of economic level, meaning this. He's not talking about the value of women being less or second place to man, but rather their role both uh, in marriage and in relationship to the church. Man is to be head over the wife, 
uh, both in the marriage and also man is to be head over women or to exercise authority in the church, not men, or not women, not women. Uh, Also look at uh, the same chapter in 1 Corinthians, uh, but at verses 11 and 12, Paul says this, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through women, but all things are from God. Um, so when we're addressing this matter, we're not saying that women are less valuable than men. Uh, they are created equal in value, yet different in role. Equal in value, but different in role. And that is not even to say that one role has, is lesser, has lesser value than the other. Man's role is important, and woman's role is just as important. And when we try to reverse those roles, you know, it creates problems in society, in marriages, in the church. And so we are to keep to God's uh, created order. Of course, you know, we don't know why God chose to order creation in this way, but that's not really our prerogative to know that. This is how God has ordained it. This is how he has planned it. And so we are to simply obey it and fulfill our roles. Now, uh, the first reason that, uh, or first grounds that Paul gives is that, you know, he appeals to the created order. Man is formed first, then Eve. And then look at verse 14. Paul says this, giving the second reason. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. The fact is is that woman was deceived and was the first human to fall into sin. Now, uh, we had a very good discussion yesterday, and uh, what the men didn't know is that we would be addressing uh, in uh, this evening, you know, part of what we were addressing yesterday morning. Um, We had a very good discussion about deception brought uh, by our brother James there, and this passage uh, came up about, you know, deception and and how this, you know, the outworking of this and what exactly it means. And so I, hopefully I can provide uh, even some more clarity than what we received yesterday or, or in addition to what we received yesterday. The fact is, is that uh, just because uh, the woman was deceived by the serpent does not mean that she's excused or no longer culpable for her sin. She is culpable any person, whether a man or a woman, who falls you know, to deception, they are, all, they are all responsible for their sin. Because uh, the fact is, is she should not have been deceived by his craftiness. Deception is out there. You know, uh, the false teachers were promoting deceptive lies, heresies. Yet just because you know, it sounds good doesn't mean, you know, and so we accept it, doesn't mean we're no longer responsible for falling into that deception. The fact is, going back to the garden and to uh, Eve falling into deception and, and therefore sinning, she should not have followed what she knew of the instructions that her husband passed on to her from the Lord, from God, regarding the fact that she was not to eat from that tree. Um, you know, I, I, I have no doubt, I think from Scripture, that you know, she was well aware of, of, this, of these instructions, in fact, uh, the passage does make allusion to that fact that she knows she's aware of the fact that she's not to eat from it, yet she does it anyways. 
Uh, of course, you know, there is the fact that she was deceived, but yet at the same time she was well aware of these instructions. And so what really has taken place then in the garden is that there was a reversal of roles and a lack of submission to her husband and ultimately to God on her part. She knew what she was supposed to do, and yet she you know, exercised her own authority and took of it anyways, rather than submitting to what she knew was right and, uh, and, and proper for her uh, to, not, to not do. Um, at the same point, um, Romans 5, 12 to 21 teaches us that man and uh, Adam was the one whom God made responsible. And so, you know, we kind of put the blame uh, on him, and Scripture does, really, as, you know, the representative of mankind. And so, and for the, you know, being the one who, who uh, brings the entire race of mankind under sin. Now, um, you know, Paul, Paul is appealing to this, this uh, instance of in creation, or the fall, that is, in his, in his reasons here. And there's a lot of things that, uh, that were consequential or a consequence of the fall. And, uh, you know, as a kind of general application, anytime when we reverse what God says, anytime when we fail to follow God's command, it creates all kinds of issues. You know, uh, and had Eve known that, <laughs> I assume that she, you know, she would have resisted uh, the fact that, you know, it was tempting, you know, to, you know it, was, it looked good, it, it, you know, she assumed it tasted good, it was appealing, and yet, uh, you know, the, her decision to fall to, into this deceit had all kind of, of, of a, uh, consequences to it. Um, the woman was under the woman was under the influence of of this the serpent who is the Satan. She listened to him rather than listening to her leader, her her husband Adam. Rather than obeying God's word, she fell into deception and or or you know sinned. The woman exhibited a you know a lust of the flesh of the eyes, the pride of life, being able to know, you know. Just as God knows, the woman, you know, did not first, we talked about this yesterday, you know, she could have, you know, she couldn't have avoided the fact that she, you know, the serpent was there. You know, that, it just happened. You know, that was Satan's, you know, cunning ways. So she couldn't have avoided that, but she could have gone to her husband and said, you know, this, this doesn't seem right. You know, in a way it does, but it doesn't, you know, and so, you know, what, what do you think? (laughs) And, um. And Adam, you know, should have responded, you know, no. Remember what God has said. We are not to eat of it, and so we're going to trust him about this, and we're just going to obey him. Uh, but instead, you know, she, she kind of reversed her role. She made a decision anyways, and I'm going to do this, and she transgressed. In turn, the man then followed his wife, which is also a, you know, a reversal of order. He could have stopped it then and there. Eve... <laughs> Why did you do this? You know, remember what God has said? I'm not going to eat. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll leave it to God what would have happened then, you know, with the woman sinning and, you know, maybe Adam not. The fact is he did. But we see here a reversal of orders, her exercising authority and her own decision-making in a, in a matter that was 
uh, you know, clearly in contradiction to God's word. Adam did not exercise godly leadership like he should have in the situation. Rather, he went right along with it. Um, there's more I was going to say about this, but for sake of time, I, I really we want to get to verse 15 in order to understand you know, what we should think about uh, this woman's deception. Um, and so look with me at verse 15. Paul says here, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, um, there's a lot of debate here regarding this passage and how we understand, you know, who is Paul referring to here? For instance, you know, he says, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. If they, so she, he uses the singular, and then he moves to the plural, she and then they. So, you know, who is the she, who is the they? You know, is she talking about Eve being saved, perhaps, in childbearing? You know, but then if that's the case, then, you know, who is the they? You know, it kind of seems to be, you know, the same person that Paul's talking about here, just the context. So, you know, who is it? Um, and, and there's much debate about this. Some take the she to be referring, the antecedent to be Eve is then, you know, the one in mind that she will be saved in childbearing. But, for, um, you know, if we just read the text, it says she will be saved. It's future tense. So it really doesn't seem, you know, to be uh, the fact that this could be Eve who's, you know, at a, you know, a later time, you know, after she, she dies or whatever it may be is, you know, is saved. Um, and furthermore, you know, Paul does then use the plural they uh, there in verse 15. And uh, I think we can properly understand this based on other texts that the she here, even though it's in the singular, can be referring to kind of a, a collective sense or a representative sense. So the she is representing all the women and uh, there's other texts, we won't look at that now, that you know, have this kind of collective idea, even when it's used in, in the singular. And so if that's the case, and I, you know, I, I believe it is, then this she and the they is referring uh, back to the women who are being spoken about in verses you know, 11 and 12, the women in the church. They can be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and with self-control. The problem here, as uh, Paul is noting, is that um, the, the deception, uh, the fact that Eve was deceived and fell into transgression and sinned, and sin kind of has created then a, a stigma, as we might put it, that women are second place in value, or, that, uh, or the fact that they are now known to be dominating over men. You know, and that was part of the consequence of the Paul, that, you know, that women would want to, you know, have authority over the men. It would kind of become an innate problem in, in the, the identity or constitution of a woman that, you know, they are, they are always and ever trying to, you know, take authority over. You know, uh, the, I think it's here in the New King James, it says it this way, they, they will have a desire over man, but really that desire is a desire to have authority, not you know a good kind of desire for him, you know, in any kind of intimate sense or kind of companionship sense. And so 
Paul, what Paul is addressing here is the fact that there is this kind of stigma of both the woman falling into deception, you know, Eve, you know, Eve, you know, sin first, or the fact that, you know, oh, women always are just trying to exercise authority over men. And so, you know, how are they, how are they saved, if we can put it that way, from this kind of stigma or being known for this kind of, this, you know, for these very facts? Um, you know, Eve, as a representative, led, you know, the race that is the, the kind of the women's side down the path of sin, although, you know, Romans 5 teaches us, of course, that man is, uh, you know, ultimately responsible for this sin. So what do we do about this? Well, verse 15 offers a remedy for the, what we might say, the seemingly second-place standing of women, at least in the eyes of, of some. Verse 15 um, tells us this, that she will be saved in childbearing. Now, um, I don't know that uh, the word saved is the best translation here because it, you know, our first thought is, well, you know, is Paul talking about uh, spiritual salvation uh, or uh, is he talking about, you know, some other kind of salvation? Well, the fact is it cannot mean more, uh, mean two or more things, you know, at once. It only means one thing. So it can't, you know, mean spiritual salvation and also mean something else at the same time. Um, some have taken it to mean that uh, women are physically saved in, well, you know, when they're in labor and delivery of a child. But the fact is many godly women die during childbirth. Not all, unfortunately, you know, are, are you know, make it safely out of that experience. Um, of course, you know, we've mitigated that, uh, the, the percentage of women dying through good medicine and uh, good practices, but the fact is it still happens. Childbearing always has and always will carry the danger of the curse of being painful and also the potential of being fatal. Um, and, and maternal and infant mortality is a very real possibility. And so Paul certainly can't be talking about physical salvation. He also cannot be talking about spiritually, spiritual salvation by labor or delivery as well, because, of course, this runs into the problem of salvation by works, you know, um, and working out, you know, being saved by something we do. It also is complicated by the fact that not all women have children, and so, you know, well, they just missed the opportunity, I guess, because, you know, they, they, they weren't married, or, you know, they couldn't have children, and so, well, they're just, you know, they're lost, and so, you know, there's many reasons why this can't be the case. Having a child has nothing to do with getting saved or, or be going to heaven. <clears throat> it also cannot mean spiritual salvation by faithful child rearing. Um, and we'll make the case, or I'll just make it now, that when Paul says here childbearing, I don't think he has just in mind the, the labor and delivery side of this. It has to do with all that encompasses both, you know, from the very beginning of giving birth to that child, but also then raising them up into adulthood, you know, and, and child rearing um, and, and raising them. But the fact is, you know, even with that understanding of the text of child rearing, uh, 
what Paul is not saying is that, you know, by faithfully, uh, you know, rearing this child up, you know, teaching them the word of God, bringing them to church, you know, having them read the Bible every day, you know, doing devotions, Paul is not saying this saves the woman. Um, you know, we should, as a woman, you should happily accept the role that God has assigned you. And uh, by doing this, by being a faithful, you know, child-rearing uh, mother, um, you are doing a good work, but that doesn't save you. You're just being faithful to God's, you know, role for you as a, as a mother and as a woman. Some, uh, I'll try to wrap this up quickly, some have said that, you know, if, if the she refers to Eve, uh, then, you know, this refers to the fact that by Eve, you know, through her line, the Messiah, you know, eventually will come. You know, there's the promise, promise in Genesis 3.15 of a seed being born uh, through her. And so, you know, Paul has in mind that through her, through her seed, a Messiah will come who will, in turn, you know, offer salvation to all women. And so in that sense, you know, you know Eve, is, Eve is saved you know, through the, through the you know, provision of a Messiah through her seed, and, and then ultimately all women can be saved as well. Uh, I made the case, you know, it doesn't really seem to make sense based on the fact that it says she will be saved, and also that, you know, this should be taken in kind of a collective sense of, of women, not just a singular woman. Um, now, on that note, and specifically on that view, I, I, I will even, you know, temper it by saying this. There are many theologians who accept this view and have thought it out far more than I have. And so, you know, uh, I, I say this with, you know, with humility, I hope, that, you know, I, I think it one way, but there are many well-esteemed uh, conservative theologians who would take it a different way. But, uh, you know, we just want to be trying to be as faithful as we can to the text. So um, let me conclude by saying it this way. Um, I take saved to mean uh, not spiritual salvation, rather a kind of deliverance to be delivered. Um, and uh, Paul uses some language like this elsewhere, although you know, we omit that often when he refers to saved, it has to do with spiritual salvation, but um, it can also mean delivered. The fate the woman is being delivered from is uh, the, the permanent kind of second-class status or stigma of being the one that's been deceived, you know, at the fall, the, the stigma of, you know, always trying to be, you know, domineering over men to take over authority and, uh, you know, all that goes with that. The word child-rearing or child-bearing uh, refers to more than just, you know, the deliverance of a baby, you know, in the delivery room, but also all of child-rearing and raising and what Paul is teaching here then is that women who embrace their God-given role of, of being you know, submissive to the authority of men and raising their children uh, as they are called to do can deliver themselves out of this kind of stigma of, well, you know, look at that woman out there who's just you know, you know, trying to exercise authority over over a man, she isn't, you know, she isn't submitting herself. She isn't raising her children like she ought to be. A woman, a woman can deliver herself from that by taking up and embracing her God-given role and honoring the Lord in that way by raising her children uh, and doing it well. 
If a woman takes on this role, thus showing their submission in the God-ordained order of things, and does so with faith and love and holiness and self-control, then they will be delivered from this kind of of, uh, accusation or kind of, you know, stigma. Now, you know, the normal pattern is that women have children, but if they do not, they still can participate in society in raising up the next generation of godly men and women. You know, you may be sitting out there and say, you know, I've never had children or I can't have children, so how do I deliver myself, you know, out of this circumstance? Well, you can certainly participate in helping, you know, raise children, uh, whether it be in the context of the church, you know, helping, you know, raise up the children through teaching them the word of God. Um, You can participate in the good works and, you know, the modest uh, apparel that Paul talks about in verses uh, 10 and 11. You can do much to raise up uh, the next generation in a godly manner by setting setting an example yourself and how you conduct yourself, even if you don't have children of your own. Ultimately, though, um, though women are prohibited from being pastors and teachers, they can have a monumental influence on the godliness of those who are pastoring and teaching in the church. For instance, the first you know, prime example is, think about Timothy. Timothy, in a, you know, a position of leadership and authority and a, a kind of uh, teaching position here in Ephesus, the reason he's such, in such a position is because of the godly influence of his mother and grandmother, who raised him and taught him in the scriptures, therefore eventually influencing the pulpit, influencing the, the, uh, the, the leadership of the church. That is the kind of mentality and attitude that women in the church are to have, not to just be trying to exercise authority over men, but saying, how can I raise up my children or other children up in the church so that God is honored and so that there are men who are capable of leading the church? And by doing so, you're not doing a second-tier, this isn't a second-tier task that you're, you know, you're, 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 pursuing. This is God's ordained and created design for you. Don't think, you know, well, you know, I, I wish I could do this, or I wish I could, you know, I wish I could teach, I wish I could pastor. No, you can, uh, you can, uh, let me put it this way, you, you can, uh, you can be the best that God has created you to be by fulfilling this role of, of submitting to the men and raising up children to honor the Lord. Now, the fact is, and I'll conclude here, is that, you know, even if you do this, or let me put it this way, even if you attempt to do this with your children, it doesn't always mean the results are going to be what you wish. However, that does not mean you're not delivered from that stigma. You can, you can be obedient to God. You can raise them and, and at the end of the day say, Lord, I've done everything that you've called me to do whether, you know, a mother or a father, to raise my children in the word of God. And the rest I leave in your hands. But I know that I've been faithful to my role. And that's not easy to do. It's not easy to accept. You, you want your children to come to salvation. You want them to know the blessing and the joy of salvation. But whether that ever happens or not, um, as a woman and also as a father, you can be satisfied 
knowing that you are pleasing in God's sight, that you have fulfilled his role for you, if you do it in faith, love, holiness, and with self-control. Let's pray this evening as we close. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, um, I'm just an instrument, an unworthy one, and, uh, and at times, you know, not the best one. But, Lord, your word speaks, and we, we take the authority of your word as just that authoritative, not just in Timothy's time, not just in the time that Paul was writing, but as, uh, as, as the truth in all ages, always applicable, always authoritative, uh, always good, always right, always proper, Lord. May we gladly embrace our role as a man, if a man, you know, in, the, in leadership in the home and in the church, if a woman uh, submitting to, to uh, the men as God has ordained it to be, according to his created order, according to what he has planned and what is best and what is most glorifying to his name. Help us, Lord, when we fail in this way, help us to exercise uh, submission where submission is required and uh, to learn in a quiet manner and to, uh, and to please you in this, in this way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you for uh, your patience. Uh, we've gone a little bit over, but I appreciate the attention. Uh, greet one another, and uh, please come back on Wednesday. And uh, join us for some prayer. Join us for a meal, if you can, before that, 545. And uh, the Lord bless you. And uh, may you uh, find someone this week to share the gospel with. Pray for at least, like Paul instructs us to do. And uh, take advantage of every opportunity. All right, you're dismissed.